This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, a recent poll found that 82% of voters want the United States to prioritize a transition to 100% clean energy. The vast majority of a, politically speaking, deeply divided nation support legislation to decarbonize the economy over the next few decades. That seems optimistic. How will we get there? In the Puget Sound region, part of the answer to that question is through the efforts of organizations like Forterra, a Washington-based land, resource, and community stewardship nonprofit. Forterra publishes a biannual magazine called Ampersand. And every year, for seven years now, the magazine's staff and contributors have put on Ampersand Live, an event that brings the spirit of their good work alive on stage. This year, that event, of course, had to be virtual, but the spirit is alive and well. The theme this year was restoration, with an eye and ear toward, quote, the renewal and healing qualities of nature and community connection, unquote. Seattle-based composer and musician Tomo Nakayama curated the program. This ampersand live event streamed on October 29th. If you'd like to see the video of the event, there's a link on our website, KUOW.org. Just click on the podcast tab. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. This is the story of an old wooden boat that found a new home in the forests of Guimas Island, surrounded by the Salish Sea. My name is Clyde Peterson, and I'm an artist from the Northwest. This is the Dorothy Jean, a 1930s wooden yacht built on South Lake Union. I've lived in Seattle for most of my life. I kept the boat moored there, but as the tech gentrification hit the shores of a once sleepy city, and housing stability grew scarce, and artist spaces grew unaffordable. I started to search for alternative ways to preserve the Dorothy Jean and repurpose it. I wondered about turning it into a cabin on the land. In May of 2019, I happened upon a small piece of land for sale on Guimas Island, just north of Anacortes. A third of an acre, mostly wetland, hard to build a house on but easy to put in a little driveway and roll a boat right onto it. With my savings and a credit card, I bought the land for $17,000. Friends from all trades volunteered to help out. Architects, builders, electricians, touring musicians, adept at driving trailers. Together, over the last year and a half, we built this place. I call it the Fellowship Artist Residency. Fellowship is a first-come, first-serve, week-long stay in a cozy trailer near the beach. Artists receive a paid stipend of $250 for their time here to help cover costs of travel, food, and supplies. This money comes from donations. This is a space intentionally created to support queer community and black and brown and indigenous artists. As a transgender person, I'm always on the lookout for queer-centric residencies and programs that center the intersectionality of human identity and recognize that not all of us are given the same opportunities in life. There are not that many residencies in Washington State, and most of them maintain some level of gatekeeping through an application process or invitation-only status. 
I wanted to create a residency that was built with a different framework. The fellowship has no panel of judges, no evaluation of residents' artwork or past experiences. We welcome the people that get in touch and want to come here. We offer payment for their time. It's that simple. Over the summer, I built a sauna and a bathhouse on the land. I've never built a building before. I drew it out on some graph paper, counted out the boards, cut and drilled and hammered them all into place on an old trailer that we stripped down to the bones. In the fall of 2020, in the middle of this global pandemic, I launched the Fellowship Artist Residency. I've hosted five residents in a few short months, and I'm booking 2021 right now. I feel like I've lived several lifetimes since beginning this project. I'm becoming more and more like a woodland creature every day. I can feel the winter coming. I'm stockpiling wood, food, and supplies to burrow in and welcome artists to this land. I'm so grateful to get the chance to read for you. I'm going to start off with some poems, and they're from A Lesser Love. This one is called Shaman. If you want to take up space, first see how small you are, like rocks, honeycombs, and charcoal, anchoring, feeding, heating. In the sky, the clouds are combed like rabbit fur. If I remember this, I am not dreaming. You place the flowered twig behind my ear, mark of my learning you in bluebell, a person small like me, but higher. This next poem, it started with a question that somebody asked me, and I thought the answer lied somewhere in where I lived and where I was, which was here in Seattle, in place. It's called Happy. The sound of a poem, it starts with the footsteps of an ant over the log we sit on. We hold up steaming mugs and we commit our anxieties to the air, for these anxieties to become air, warmer and fresher as they rise away. The prologue prolongs the holy word, blight. There is light eschewed from our bodies, in all places, a source of its own, highlighting our features with pale, observable lightness as it does to breasts and breath. The middle begins with rocks falling off a cliff face into the water. This is the argument against time that passes through our bodies, sinks to the bottom of what used to be, raging at the seconds, sweeter and more stale as they leave us. Crisis is shaped like an owl pellet we open together. The tiny bones, beaks, and fur. There is a little tooth, a puff of feather. The further we peel back the translucent layers, the more heaven is dimmed by our bright and curious joy. The solar system is a clock. It turns as we pull the tool, leave the linen, divide the diamond, christen the chrysanthemum, circle the sound as we ourselves pull back into solace. We are witnesses of each other. Afterward, we are unconcealed. Soon there is no difference between words and then things. We are beginning we are elliptical. You ask me across the aisle of the market, eating your croquette. 
How can you make a poem happy? This next passage I'm reading um, from my memoir, The Magical Language of Others. And it's a, a moment where my grandmother, Kumiko, has chosen the place to rest here in the States and its meaning to me and our family. Her grave was cleared of weeds, pulled by the workers she had greeted herself the previous year. Maybe she wanted to be close to her family, buried in the country chosen by her children. As I learned Japanese, Rome through Ueno and the elevator of that dokan, I learned to isolate myself through language, from English to Korean to Japanese. It was so effective, it was frightening, as if I could guard against others like a spy, where I could hardly open my mouth before. It now seemed that no one could speak to me. Languages, as they open you, can also allow you to close. When I felt myself running toward seclusion, I heard my grandmother and my great-grandfather urging me to try, and how much harder one must try when learning to love. She never asked me to speak, but to understand rather than endure to forgive and never to sacrifice, only to let go. Thank you. My name is Juan Alonso Rodriguez. I was born in Havana, Cuba, and I'm a visual artist. The story that I want to tell you today involves a house that I have fantasized for years about restoring, but it is actually way too late for it to be physically restored. And it also involves a couple of gifts that my father has given me. My father has always been my hero since I was a child and still is today. Um, one of the gifts that he gave me is the reason I am here today. In 1966, in Cuba, I remember exactly where we were on the side porch of the city house where we lived. And he took me aside and he said to me, I don't think things are going in the right direction here. And I think it would be good if you left and went to the U.S., so I like the fact that he was giving me the choice. He was treating me a little bit more like an adult, even though I was nine years old. But I had this, this opportunity, and having had a very good relationship with my father and trusting him in everything that he said, I decided to go ahead and follow his advice. And in, on March 2nd, 1966, I arrived in the U.S., the other gift that I want to talk about was the spark of creativity that he gave me. And in order to tell you a little bit more about that, I have to go into a little bit of family history. My grandfather was born in Spain and he moved to Cuba where he met my grandmother and he started a wrought iron shop there. Um, then they rented this house in the city of Havana. It was a very large house. At one point, there were 14 of us living there. 
So it was my grandparents, their three sons, their wives, and their kids. So this very blue-collar family did not spend a whole lot of money on extravagant things. All their income was from the wrought iron shop. And they also didn't believe in taking vacations. So their idea of a getaway was this farmhouse that they had been renting for years. And they would go there on the weekends and sometimes for longer periods of time in the summer. Somehow, as if I were telepathically communicating with them, the year that I was born, they decided to stop renting the farmhouse and build a house on the beach, which actually was way better for me because I'm definitely not a farm boy and I love the beach. So uh, when, they, when I say that they built it, they actually helped build the house. A lot of the steel that was involved in the structure of the house was supplied by my family's company. One of my uncles built most of the wood furniture, including these beautiful credenzas that contoured the round dining room of the house. And my father uh, designed and fabricated all the outer doors to the house. But more importantly than that, he designed and fabricated the railings that went along two sides of the house and included the stairway that went up to the entrance of the house. Now, when I was young, I always admired these railings. I thought that these railings were absolutely beautiful. And when I found out that my father had actually designed them and made them, it gave me this huge sense of pride. And seeing those railings was kind of like there's something inside me went like, I want to be creative. So those railings, that house has always been in the back of my mind um, since I left Cuba. And now move up to 2011, I was selected to create some artwork for Chief South International High School. The first thing that I did when I was selected for this project was go talk to Cecile Hansen, who was the chairperson of the Duwamish tribe. I didn't want to make anything that was in any way disrespectful to the tribe. I didn't want to appropriate any, any kind of design or any kind of uh, anything having to do with taking anything away from that. But I did want to give a nod to the tribe. So after meeting with her, I came up with the idea of sentinels. Um, and I also started thinking, well, this, this school is named after Chief, Chief South. And I considered Chief South the father of Seattle. It's the, the person that the city is named after. And of course, you know, father immediately made me think of my own father. And... Um, I started thinking, what if I used that, that very first spark, that very first image that made me feel that I wanted to be creative? So what I ended up doing was looking at this really small, I mean, it was like this little tiny photograph of the house. It was the only photograph of the house that I had. And it was a funny photograph because there's some guy walking across in front of it with his hand in his mouth and it was just odd. But that was it. That was all I had. And I blew it up and I took three of the components of the railings and ended up creating six eight-foot sculptures that now flank the entrance to the auditorium of the high school. Finishing that project, I felt very proud of this really personal journey that I had taken and that I had been able to bring back and, and like revive uh, my father's designs. I finished this project in August of 2011. And in September of 2011, I decided that 45 years after I had left Cuba, I was emotionally ready to go back. Now, my father had passed away in 1991. I never got a chance to see him again after I left. But when I did go back to Cuba, I was able to go to both of the houses where I had lived as a child. 
And um, importantly for me, I got to see those railings again that had played such a, a huge part in, in my memories of being a child in Cuba. Now they're deteriorating, but there's still this amazing beauty about them that you just can't deny. And, and just not just the beauty of the actual physical object, but the beauty of that gift that I had been given at you know, such an early age. You know, and as, as artists, it's important to tell stories. It's important to leave the place where you live a little in a in better condition than how you found it. To to add something positive to the place that you live and the place that you love. And I also think that whenever we leave that legacy that may be seen or may be appreciated sometime in the future and not necessarily immediately, we're also bringing that legacy that has been left to us by our ancestors. And to me, that has significant value. So I'm hoping that we all think about planting that seed that might be the bloom sometime in the future when it is more likely to be appreciated. Shana Shepard, and it is a pleasure to be here at the Morse Wildlife Refuge, where the ground is alive right now in this really true way, and I feel very much at home with um, so many creatures I never get to hang out with right now. Um, the song is called Apple Tree, and I wrote it uh, based on my favorite book as a kid, The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein, um, which at the time when I read it, I thought it was about, you know, ungrateful kids not being, you know, very responsible or responsive to their, their environment and their friends. But um, as an adult in reading it, um, I realized that the biggest gift that we give uh, is the energy of love, whether that's to our friends and family members or strangers or just to the earth that provides us a space to be ourselves. So um, super, very grateful to be in this space playing this song. It's a, an honor. <laughs> Try 
Again, another robin, that kind of laughter they do. Is that what you were mimicking? Mm -hmm. No, that's called pishing. Mm -hmm. And um, birds are kind of nosy. They want to come out and see what's going on. And they hear like a high pitch um, sound like that. Edda Cozy. I'm um, a birder. Started birding at the age of 60 and uh, have done this for 16 years. I'm from Louisiana and Louisiana you know, has lots of birds, but I just never, I never met a birder. You know, I never was introduced to the hobby. I never had birding books around the house. And um, it's, just, it's just interesting. I just never, never, never considered birds as a hobby. Started with um, a trip to Fort Worth, Texas. My grandson uh, and his mother were there. My job was to take him out every morning for a walk. And it was during spring migration. So it was all these ducks and birds everywhere. It was just wonderful. I didn't know what a dove was. <laughs> this is horrible. So I bought my first book there. It was Birds of Texas. I was just off. I was just passionate about birding. I hear a song sparrow. Initially, when I started birding, I only learned the male species of the birds because they're more colorful. 
So then I had to go back and learn all the females, and you know, and that was that was troublesome. And then I ignored the bird songs because someone said, you know, you have to be musical, and I'm not musical. I never played an instrument, and I was in the Master Birders program for CL Audubon, and one of the tests in order to um, get selected was to learn 20 bird songs, and so I'm pretty good, not top, but I'm I'm better than I used to be by far. One of my experiences out here, I was in Zambia, and I was bird watching. It was a family trip, but I, I would take my binoculars with me. And so the last night we were there, uh, we did a river boat ride. And so I had asked a waiter whether uh, there were any birds on the lake. And um, my daughter, he must have responded, but I didn't apparently hear him. And she said, well, he said the captain doesn't like birds. He loves birds. So I went up to where the captain was, and we t I spent the whole trip talking about birds. And so at some point, we passed some birds. It was sherbirds, And he reversed the boat and pulled in so that I could get a better look. That's the, the beauty of birding. You have experiences you never ever imagine you would have. There he is. Encounters with people, not necessarily birds, but with people. I love it. I recommend birding to everyone. The younger, the better. Did you see one? I did. He hopped around here and he went back over. I would like to first of all thank the Lummi, the Nooksack, the Samish, and the Semiamu whose land we're on right now. So the coastal and Salish tribes own this earth and we're honored to be even standing here. My first poem is called Magpies and it's about my mom who is a Santee Sioux Native American. Women are kind, we dirt poor. Dancing dervish on chili dog night, never had two dollars to unfold between us. Never had two shovels to dig the same hole. But we kitchen gab about the latest trends. We bluff in bourgeois. We threaten to get our hands on something that will smooth this horrific transformation into old age, like hair dye. Magpies, we collect paper clips. A divorced earring, an amethyst, a bonsai, which are said to symbolize beauty and restraint while imprisoned in a craftsman when the eviction notice gesticulates with warnings of winter. I'm too young to go gray, I say to my mom, who doesn't buy it. She says, oh, turn the light on. But can the light be Lark, Juno, Crema, some Instagram filter? Can my head always tilt in half shadow when a computer boy asks my name? And my body, let it be cropped off in bedroom nebula. Just let me be a huge face surrounded by flowers floating. I produce a glass vial of roller perfume that I found and her eyes wheeling obsidian pass over and smile. She usually wants anything. She'll even take your junk. Tie buckskin to an ear of it. Try it, I say, holding in the air like a joint. She snatches it and rolls it over her scars that are little instances of white lightning. Smelling her brown bones, she begins to sob. It smells like my mom. She buckles over and hides her falsies. 
under paper skin claws. It smells like her sheets. It really does. And she holds her hands up flat like she's smoothing the linen. I tell her, keep it. And I wonder what I'll miss the most. Gravy and fried chicken? Doesn't have the same romance of amber and sandalwood. Her elegant reservation magpie magic is not something I could gather up in a drawer or hang from a chain. How this perennial refugee can turn an abandoned blanket into actual bird wings for fancy dancing. A plastic clip into an artifact from an archaeological dig. A scrap of black lace into an Egyptian arm cuff, a cerebus to protect the house into a guinea pig. An actual rose that fell from the neighbor's yard into a rose that never fell at all. A rose that married a turkey feather and the sorceress who joined them together. How clever she is with a safety pin. This poem is called Return of a Tree Five Times Removed. And it starts off with a quote by Tommy Pico, who's a native poet I really admire. And he says, I can't write a nature poem because it's fodder for the noble savage narrative. I'd slap a tree across the face. Closing my eyes, pulsing with heartbeat, slow with screen fatigue, Annie Dillard made me want to go to the forest. My sorry-ass pandemic imagination, like wet cardboard in a storage facility and untold hours on Facebook, like a dog stuck in a truck watching for its owner who never leaves the store and never returns at all. I know that a dog never stops waiting, but I tell myself, listen to Annie Dillard. Listen to that song from Pocahontas, whose best friend was a raccoon, ostensibly like in real life, right? And I tell myself, get the fuck out. But when I hear, come taste the sunsweet berries of the earth, I think, like, where, though, will someone call the cops on me? When I hear, come roll in all the riches that surround you, I think that sounds expensive. When I hear, can you sing with all the voices of the mountain, I think, okay, that register's probably too low. And when I hear, can you paint with all the colors of the wind? I think, okay, but where do I sign up for this bougie art class? Outside, outside the breeze really makes me smile. But I seem to dislike everyone I see. And the only people I immediately love are the ones that are struggling visibly. If you're carrying several shitty bags of plastic groceries and they're pinching the soft part of your inner arm, truncating the beautiful blue worms that are like a Dutch canal system, they are shuttling your life force like a little boat, then you could use some help. You are flickering, my love, and I love you. If you're an animal around here, most of the time you're a deer and you have no fucking clue that you're so gorgeous it's arresting and we are both paralyzed likewise. And my eyes dilate because I am so scared to move. I am scared of scaring you. I know there's a car in your calendar. And I know it's coming for your body and it will bear it. And I love you. I love you. But everyone else I see crowding the waterfront, the campsite, the park, even the rockiest and coldest part of the beach, wearing no masks where I just wanted to listen. All I heard was your laughter, bro. 
and Blondie, like canned laughter, in lieu of voices from the mountain. Those voices were deleted by you a long time ago. Not enough data left over for a file as big as singing. So I order french fries for the homeless guy and I remember I never really knew nature. Parks with fences and hours of operation do not count. There is a wilderness inside of me. But it's buried under five generations of forced removal. Of shovels turned bulldozers and the moldering nature of memory. How it rolls the carpet behind itself and sweeps up your footsteps like an enchanted broom. I walk back to my no-bedroom apartment. I close my eyes and I start running. When I came to America at age three, um, I didn't realize that moving to the Pacific Northwest, that this would be my new place and my sense of home. My mom is from Schwarzwald, Germany, also known as the Black Forest. And then my dad is from Charleston, South Carolina, but he was raised in the Bronx. Uh, He ended up meeting my mother in Germany and then came over here because he was stationed um, on JBLM in the military. When he got out of the military, he actually worked to help cap the Asarco smelter here in Tacoma, Washington. At that time, I didn't understand what environmental restoration was, and I didn't really realize that it had anything to do with anything like environmental justice. That word was completely foreign to me. But seeing him do that work and understanding the impact that it had to the community was the reason that I did the work that I do today. When I moved here, I fell in love with the water and I fell in love with Puget Sound. I love invertebrate species. And by the time I was five years old, I knew I was going to be a marine biologist. We went down to Titlow Beach every single weekend so that I could go find starfish, starfish of every single color. And when I got older, I realized that these animals were threatened. I mean, as we know, climate change is destroying our planet, especially our oceans, which very much go unprotected. My father and I did a lot of activism here in the city of Tacoma, um, working to talk to people about environmental hazards. By the time I was seven years old, I could say environmental hazardous waste and hazwopper training, which was something that not a lot of seven-year-olds knew how to do. And then the older I got, I realized I'm going to go to school for this. This is something that I can do. But seeing my father work in environmental justice spaces here in the city of Tacoma, I realized that not a lot of people were like us. Not a lot of people had stories like us, and no one looked like us. I realized that climate change had been fought one type of way for a very long time, and we weren't necessarily part of that conversation, and we weren't really at the table. Anyways, by the time I went to college, I decided I was going to major in marine biology and minor in wildlife biology, as well as minor in dance. And while I was there, and while I did my research... The more classes I got into, the higher level I got into, and the more research I did around the country, again, I realized I was the only person that was like me in those spaces. Usually the only black woman, and most of the time the only black person. One of my absolute favorite animals is the orca whale, specifically the southern resident killer whale, uh, which is part of the reason why I moved back to Tacoma after school. But just like the orca, I feel really endangered in these spaces. I like the orca a lot because just like me, it's black and white, it's charismatic, it loves the Salish Sea, and it loves salmon, which I could eat it every single day for every meal. But just kind of like the orca, my community is being destroyed by climate change. The air that I breathe is getting thicker and thicker. I mean, even these last couple of weeks, we've had smoke in the air and I haven't been able to go outside and enjoy a space and enjoy my planet. Just like the orca whale, our habitat is being destroyed and our water is being full of pollution. And it's been really difficult because a lot of the decisions that we've made as people have actually impacted these animals in a negative way to the point where it's the most polluted marine mammal on the planet. But just like I have hope for the environmental justice movement, I have hope for orcas. I mean, right now, all the orca pods have pregnant females and we just had a baby birth. Just like I am hopeful for the environmental justice movement, With Black Lives Matter and social movements going on the rise internationally as well as in this space here in the Pacific Northwest, 
we have really looked at different perspectives in terms of how to fight climate change. Environmental injustices have to be addressed. Racism drives climate change. Racism is the type of systems that, put in, that are put in place in a way where we can keep these oppressed communities down. And we do that using environmentalism and using the environment as a tool of oppression. But it can also be the way that we get to fighting climate change. If we don't address injustices, then everything that we do to fight climate change is just symptomatic. But it doesn't get to the root causes which is part of the reason why I really think that empathy is a huge strategy for fighting climate change because everybody has different nature stories. Every single person on the planet has an interaction or some sort of relationship with the environment. But it's understanding what that relationship is and what that means to someone else. I know for me, I like to use intersectional environmentalism, which is just a way of looking at environmentalism through a different lens and a different perspective. Intersectional environmentalism looks at other ways of fighting climate change because STEM is important, but STEM can also be done in different ways, whether that's through a tribal knowledge lens or through social movements or through art. And so we have to look at all these different strategies to be able to answer the question, which is how do we fight climate change? But we have to have everybody at the table, but the table wasn't made for everyone. So we have to rebuild a new one. And part of what I do when I'm not doing marine biology and when I'm not educating in public spaces or working in policy is I dance. And for me, and especially from folks in my community, dance is a huge part of my culture. And dancing is sometimes how I have to tell the stories that I can't tell through data or through research. And this is why it's important for us to look at different people's perspectives.
Thank you. This ampersand live event streamed on October 29th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org, and click on the podcast tab. There's a link to the video presentation of Ampersand Live, which includes additional performances. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon. Oh, 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 oh,